0: Please join me in prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for this night, the chance to celebrate with friends and family and to, to worship you, our Savior and our God. And Lord, I pray that you would help me give clarity to your word. In particular, Lord, that you would give us understanding regarding the peace. That you've provided in Christ. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you know, peace is one of those major themes of Christmas. It's the theme of many Christmas songs and Christmas cards and lots of Christmas decorations. And this is for good reason because much of the scriptures that speak about the coming Messiah emphasize that he is going to bring peace. And when we think about peace, I think most of us, when we hear that word, we tend to think of a lack of hostilities, a ceasing of hostilities, the ending of all wars. In fact, that's how the term is used, I think, in most Christmas messages that we hear today. Amy Grant, in her song, My Grown-Up Christmas List, confesses that what she wants for Christmas is this sort of peace, no more lives torn apart. That wars would never start, and time would heal all hearts, and everyone would have a friend, and right would always win, and love would never end. These are good things, of course, but I think if we were to examine what the Bible speaks of when it refers to the peace that Christ brings, these are not primarily what it's referring to even if we were to experience an end to all hostilities and end to all wars, even now, even today, the problem that produces the wars would not change. James, in his epistle, chapter 4, verse 1, writes this. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So James emphasizes that, it, that the peace that God brings isn't primarily external because our major problem is internal. It's an internal war. But the peace the Bible refers to also speaks to this mindset or the situation of the soul. The Hebrew word shalom means friendship or reconciliation. It can refer to wholeness or security. So it's not just an absence of war without, but it's actually an absence of the war within. That's why it's called, translated often, peace. But it can be translated as contentment, satisfaction, fulfillment. In fact, when the, the Hebrews, the Jews, would greet a friend as they came into contact with him, they'd say Shalom. And after that friend would depart, they would also say Shalom, that, that that peace would reign in their relationships. So Christ did come into the world to bring peace, but but not in the way that I think most people imagine, an ending of all wars. And so this Christmas Eve, instead of preaching on just one text of Scripture, I wanted to just examine how this theme of peace gets developed in these Christmas passages so so that you can see how peace is emphasized within these texts that we often look to regarding Christmas, but other texts as well that lead into this theme. And I want to begin with the text that we looked at last Sunday with the Aaronic benediction from Numbers. Now, you might recall that Peace is the central blessing in the Aaronic benediction. That's the the blessing that the priest would offer after a sacrifice was made for an atonement of sins. And this this poem, so to speak, this blessing, this prayer, uh, had a kind of a a tiered effect. And it ended with that final word, shalom, peace. And the, the benediction really is a picture of God's ultimate desire for his people. To experience his peace. And notice too that the the New Testament writers, when they would uh, begin an epistle or a letter, they would start it with grace and peace. In fact, that's often how they ended it. Just like the Jews would begin and end a conversation with shalom. The New Testament writers would say grace and peace. In fact, the same two emphases in the New Testament writers. Grace and peace And this benediction really pictures God's people dwelling in the light of his presence, even as he originally designed them to experience in the Garden of Eden, but of course was ruined with Adam's fall. God was seeking to bring Israel back to that Eden-like experience. That's why he had the tabernacle built It was so that they could dwell in His presence and enjoy His blessings and his favor. And so the peace that is pictured here in the benediction is both external and internal. It speaks of emotional peace. Not having any fear, any anxiety, no anger or confusion, being emotionally at peace. But also relational peace. No more enmity with God. No more enmity with other believers. Unity, harmony. It speaks to physical peace, no no aches and pains, no more illnesses, no more death, no more diseases. This is the shalom that is offered in this benediction. And of course, spiritual peace, maybe a ceasing of sin. And along like that, no more guilt, no more shame. This is what God wanted his people to experience. This is what they would have experienced had they listened to his commandments. But, of course, they failed to obey and therefore they failed to experience this peace. But even though they were unfaithful, God was still faithful to bring about this peace. That they would one day receive this promised peace. The prophet Isaiah announced that this is exactly what would happen when the Messiah arrived. The well-known Christmas text, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, says this. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Emphasis on Prince of Peace. It culminates in that title. And of course, then it says in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, shalom, there will be no end. And this is why when the angels announced to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth, they said this, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And and this was announced because this is exactly what the Jews expected the Messiah to bring when he arrived. That he would bring an end to hostilities, bring an end to their oppression by the Roman overlords. But to their shock and amazement, when Christ began his ministry, he announced that he came not to bring peace. He said in Matthew chapter 10, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake. We'll find it. So that's strange. All these prophecies about a Messiah that would bring peace. And Jesus made it very clear that he did not come to bring peace. So how do we make sense of that? Jesus said it would not, he would not bring peace, but actually persecution, even hatred amongst family members. He would be the cause of families being torn apart. How do we make sense of this? Well, the the simple answer is that God's plan of redemption comes in stages. And we see this throughout the Bible, but that's what's happening here in particular. Jesus' first priority when he came to the earth was to deal with man's fundamental problem, their worship problem. We, on account of sin, do not naturally worship God. We do not do what God wants. In fact, the very idea of somebody telling us to do something bugs us to no degree. It angers us. Instead, we tend to do what we want. We want to live according to our own desires, our own rules. We live for ourselves and not for Him, though He is our Creator. We all have this problem. In John 8.34, that's why Jesus announced... Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The sun remains forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. What Jesus was saying is man's fundamental problem is they're slaves to sin. They can't get rid of this impulse to just do what they want to do. In fact, they're only going to obey God if what God tells them to do lines up with what they want to do. God is going to be... They'll worship God as long as He is a means to accomplishing their own interests. As long as God is subordinate to their desires. And so Jesus came to deal decisively with this slavery to sin. That we wouldn't be consumed by our own selfishness and pride. And He sets us free by... Becoming the curse for us. Taking the penalty that we deserved on account of our pride. And this was the first great work of the Messiah that was announced by the prophet Isaiah. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us Shalom. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, Jesus knew that in order for him to bring about the peace that God had always intended for us to experience when he created us, in order for us to be restored to that created purpose, to enjoy holistic peace, he needed to pay the penalty for our sin. And in order to do that, he would have to die. And that's why he told his disciples on the night when he was betrayed. Peace. I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Do I give to you? Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away. And I will come to you. When Jesus made these words He was basically telling them, again, the thing he'd been telling them previously, that he had come to Jerusalem to die. He was following the Father's will, the Father's design, that there would be a sacrifice made for sinners, and it would be him. But he's also announcing not only his death, but his impending return, that he would come again, and which is precisely what happened three days after he died. And notice what he announces to his disciples when he sees them after his resurrection. On the evening that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were there for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them with his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. He's emphasizing this. Peace. I've come to bring peace. As the Father has sent me, even now I am therefore sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And then in verse 26, eight days later... It says his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said for the third time, peace be with you. This is his message. The very first thing he announces after his resurrection to his disciples is that he has brought peace. It was Jesus' way of communicating to them that his mission was accomplished. But if you're following everything that I've said so far, this should still be unsettling because the shalom that was promised in the Old Testament, in these messianic passages, God's desire to bring us back to a restored Eden was not the disciples' experience. In fact, it was far from the disciples' experience. Every single one of the apostles was martyred except for John. And his life was horrific as well. And in fact, persecution has been largely what the church has experienced for the last 2,000 years. So what of this promised peace? Well, again, it highlights the fact that God's plan of redemption takes place in stages. What Jesus had brought about primarily through his death and resurrection was spiritual peace. Peace with God, the Father. And this is what Paul speaks to in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, referring to faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus accomplished through his death. And because we have peace with God, this peace with God then leads to obedience And so in a few verses later, sorry, in Romans chapter eight, Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements by the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. What Paul is saying is that since believers have been born again, since they have been regenerated through the Holy Spirit, this allows for peace with God and therefore they genuinely desire from the heart to obey Him. They desire to obey Him even more than they want to follow their own fleshly impulses. Now, we're all born in this world just wanting to do what we want to do. But the miracle, and it's a miracle. And if you're a believer in Christ, you would experience this miracle. The miracle that takes place is you no longer do what you want to do, but you actually want to, you want to obey everything the Bible says. And it's miraculous. More than this, it brings about the peace of unity. Not only the peace of obedience, but the peace of unity. Paul says in Ephesians, speaking of the tension between the relationships of Jews and Gentiles, that He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace relational unity, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who are near. You see this emphasis. When Christ died, he brought about peace with God, but not just peace with God, relational peace and the peace that comes from obedience. And because this is what He accomplished, this is why He told His disciples right before He rose again to the Father, he, he gave them the Great Commission and said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all peoples, to every tribe, tongue, and nation, that they might hear that they can have peace. And He says in Matthew twenty-four, fourteen, And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And that's noteworthy because the end is the end that comes with the peace that was originally announced in all these Messianic passages. That shalom, the the return to Eden, will not be experienced through... Bringing about wars through bringing or the end of all wars through through governmental regulations and laws, it will come when Christ comes again. Let's look again at this uh, Isaiah chapter nine Christmas passage. It says the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase in the government of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of his father David, and over his kingdom, to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He's going to bring out peace that does not end. That nothing can quench it. And consider also the Christmas promise of peace in Micah 5 that announces Bethlehem as the place of his birth. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace the point of what it's saying is when the messiah comes the second time he will gather his people to himself and bring them peace. He will bring the promised shalom that was announced in the prophets and foreshadowed in the tabernacle and in the Aaronic benediction. He will restore Eden to the world. And this, of course, is what is announced in Revelation 21, the last book of the Bible. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And as you hear that description, it should resonate with what we've been looking at in the book of Numbers. That nothing unclean was allowed to come close to the dwelling place of God. And the same thing will be true here. When God dwells in Jerusalem, when Jesus lives in Jerusalem to shepherd his flock, There will be shalom because no unclean thing will be allowed. And it says in this in the next chapter. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on His foreheads. So we go right back to the ironic benediction. And so my name shall be upon them. This is when that takes place. Finally. And He says, And night will be no more. They will need no lot, no." Light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Right? That was what's depicted in the tabernacle, the, the menorah, the lampstand with the seven lights shining upon the twelve showbread to be the twelve pieces of showbread. that were emblems of the, each tribe of Israel that God's design always was for the, his people to dwell in the light of his glory. And so that's why Christ came to bring that about. But of course, this promised peace is still future. This ultimate shalom. And that's of course why we long for His return. So we haven't yet experienced it in full. So what does that mean for us now? Well, like Paul wrote in Romans and in Ephesians, for those who are in Christ, we ha- can have peace with God. We can know that we're forgiven all of our sins, all of our shame washed away through His sacrifice. And so, even though we will not experience this ultimate peace yet, the fullness of peace yet, we can still experience tastes of it now because we've been reconciled to God. And therefore, we're no longer slaves of sin. We can actually obey from the heart. And as we obey, we enjoy the blessings of obedience. That's why God gave the law. Not, to, not so that Israel be saved by the law, but so that they would know how to live in His presence so that they wouldn't be cast out. And as we walk in obedience, we have unity with God. And just as Israel tasted the sweetness of God's presence in the tabernacle while they wandered in the wilderness, likewise, we can enjoy the presence of God now as we wander in the wilderness, waiting to go to our promised land, waiting for his return. And just as Israel eagerly anticipated their entrance into the promised land, and the fullness of peace, likewise we too eagerly look forward to that future shalom with God. But we can enjoy His peace in our pilgrimage now as we trust Him, as we look to Him to guide us, as we take His word seriously and as we seek to obey Him. We can learn from Israel and enjoy God's presence even now. And this is why Paul exhorts the Philippians. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, in summary. Because now we are at peace with God, it brings about three things. The peace of obedience. We can walk in the Spirit. It brings about the peace of unity. The unity we have with other believers because we all want to obey God. We can work together towards that end. And it also brings about the peace of God's presence. Even now. Heavenly Father, we do look forward to the Fullness of peace. And we know that the the, the end of hostilities, the end of wars, will not come until Christ, until You return. And You bring it about. As You rule the nations with a rod of iron. And bring them under Your subjection. But Lord, we do want to make the most of our wilderness journey in life to enjoy Your presence, to enjoy the, Your instruction and in Your Word as we walk in obedience, but also to enjoy the purity that You've brought about through the washing of regeneration and the work of, Holy, of Your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that You would give them Your peace. Thank you, Christ, for giving us peace. We pray these things in your name. Amen.